0: Yeah, you sound fantastic. Have a nice show.
1: Thank you. Hello and welcome to Good Is In The Details. I am your host, Gwendolyn Dolsky, and guest hosting with me today is Los Angeles lawyer. You've heard him on Wisco Weekly. He knows things and stuff. Rudy Salo.
0: Good afternoon. Hey. Welcome back to the Nixon Peabody Podcast Studio. The last time I was here, I was a simple guest and now I'm a guest host
1: episode two and
0: it just feels differently I just want to lay that out there so Mm -hmm. thank you for having me again downtown LA today we're going to talk about something
1: we're going to talk about zombies and the end of the world which seems kind of appropriate since we just had two earthquakes
0: yeah no we're going to get into that actually Um, I think (laughs) I think we're going to talk about the effects of that and how it and how an earthquake is different than a viral outbreak and our author addressed that extremely important point in her, mm-hmm. in her excellent book, Going Viral.
1: In that book, Going Viral, Zombies, Viruses, and the End of the World. She is also the author of L.A. Private Eyes. She will be at the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York in the Film and Media Studies, Dahlia Schweitzer. Nice to nice to be here, both of you. Yay! Welcome.
0: Do you think we should invest in one of those clapping machines? Like after you say the guest's name, we press it and somebody claps, or no?
1: You know what? You are full of ideas, and this is why I have you. It's stupid stupid you. ideas. She Excellent. likes
0: she likes stupid. She likes stupidity. Is basically what it comes down to, Dahlia.
1: Instead of a laugh track, you'll have a clap track.
0: Yeah, clap track.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that sounds.
0: What we're talking about today <laughs> is going to be so dark. It's so yes. dark. I want to bring some levity to this. Situation. It's
2: important to laugh. It is yeah.
0: because what you wrote about, I'm sorry, is very scary.
2: No, and it put me in a dark place for a couple years.
0: You're, so you're out of that place now?
2: I am. I had to cleanse the palate with the next book. Oh, so, yeah.
0: So they're completely different?
2: Oh, well, that was the Private Eyes book because in, in a private eye narrative, there's almost always resolution rather than collapse of social order. So that was sort of how I cleansed the palate.
0: I know we're here to talk about going viral. Did you write a book about, like, detectives? I did. You did?
2: I did. I've you know wrote...
0: I'm a film noir junkie.
2: No, I did not.
0: Oh, my God. <laughs> we're going to have to do another show after this one.
2: Things so, and stuff. Rudy Sallow.
0: It's true. It's true. <laughs> so
2: it's it's L.A. Private Eyes, and it looks at the character of the private detective in Los Angeles in literature, film, and television. Ooh, did
1: you do L.A. Confidential? Of course. Oh.
0: No, I mean seriously, I I really am. I mean, I'm a junkie of a lot of things except for drugs. I don't do those. But but seriously, I'm a film
2: noir junkie. Same. Wow, that's awesome. The what book about Heat uh, Heat is more cops, I think, right? Okay, yeah, yeah. No, you're right. You're right. Um, so I I focus on private detectives. But the only I didn't want to write the book. I wanted to read the book, but the uh-huh. book didn't exist, so I had to write it. Hey, that's the rule. That's what they say. Is right? that what it, if is that's the if rule? that's
1: what you write the book that you feel like reading. Got if it, it doesn't exist, and you do it,
0: I can't wait to read that book.
1: Sure, of I course. want a signed copy
0: of it. Of course, no, that's awesome. That's really awesome. But today we're talking about a different
1: book. Yes, we're talking about outbreak and zombies, viruses. Now, something that interests me is the way in which you delve into how this genre of film reveals so much more about the way we interact and our our fears. Could you go over the five tropes of these types of films? Six tropes. Six tropes. Oops. See if I can remember them all. <laughs> I, I, I wrote, I, I oh, you wrote, them, wrote down them down. Here. Okay. okay. Yeah. Well, a big part right. I of my was questions. so. Can I? I'm sorry. I was so fascinated by it because as I was reading and I was like, "That's right. That's yeah. right.
2: Yes." Well, so this is. It's interesting because when I teach all my different classes, I teach many different subject matters, mm-hmm. and I I tell my students, I say, even if you're not interested in private eyes or you're not interested in zombies or monsters or whatever hopefully what I teach you is the toolkit so that you can recognize patterns right and when you recognize patterns in the world that surround you you can start to think about them critically and so that's sort of the foundation of everything that I do it's Mm -hmm. sort of like take a step back and let's see is x happening over and over and over again and if so why and if x is evolving why why So what I did with the outbreak narrative is I watched a lot of these movies, and I noticed that there were these certain things that would happen over and over again, and then it was sort of like, okay, why? And especially because in our society things evolve at such a rapid rate that it kind of stands out when something doesn't change, when something stays the same.
0: And, And for the benefit of our listeners who have not read this excellent book we are talking about the outbreak narrative. Would you would you mind giving some parameters regarding totally. that? What
2: that means? Yes. So the outbreak narrative is, and I, so my book focuses on the outbreak narrative in American film and television. So there are outbreak narratives in Japanese film and television, but just for the interests of my sanity, this particular book focuses on the American one. And the American one really sort of appeared in the early 1990s, which, again, was another pattern that I was like, oh, what does that mean? And in an outbreak narrative, pretty much consistently, you have the exact same plot, which is that there's the discovery of an infection, the infection spreads, there's a struggle by doctors slash scientists to contain or neutralize the virus, and then either they succeed or they don't. But that's basically every Outback narrative.
0: When you speak of, you know, the explosion in the 1990s of these films, in particular, one particular film that probably a lot of people saw and had a lot of effect on them, is Outbreak with yes. Dustin Hoffman. That yes. seems to be one of the ones that you speak of a lot in, in, in your book. Yes,
2: because that was there were a couple before. There were some like made-for-TV movies and things like that. But Outbreak that came out in 1995 was the most profitable, sort of most prominent. And so that really sort of launched the trend. And then it would continue as really outlined an outbreak, until you got to 28. Well, so after 9-11, you start to get, you still have the same basic outbreak narrative, but rather than having the virus spread by a monkey, say, um, you start having the virus spread by terrorists. So that's just kind of like it's a little minor adaptation. And then after 28 days later, you start to get the fusion of zombies with infection. But it's still the same fundamental outbreak narrative. It is. so
1: interesting. I remember the first one that we're talking about from 95. I remember experiencing the anxiety as I was watching that. But, I mean, just just listening to you talk about, okay, post 9-11, then this is what happens, then the zombie thing. It's really interesting how these films are reflecting our consciousness.
2: Well, that's what drew me to film and media studies in the first place is that... I kind of feel like I'm really a cultural studies scholar, and hopefully I'm not offending any cultural studies scholars, but for me, I'm interested in understanding the world in which we live. And I feel like the one of the best ways to understand the world in which we live is to look at what's on screen, because what's on screen is going to be reflecting what's happening in real life. So for instance, when I teach my um, History of American Television class, my students are probably surprised by how much I keep coming back to American history, because, what's on television doesn't just come out of a vacuum right i mean there's a reason why certain shows are popular when they're popular and so if you want to understand the american mindset in the 1970s go watch some episodes of mash because that becomes like a time capsule that's what drew me to film and television is it's like again For me, one of the original, and we're going to get back to the tropes, Um, but one of the original inspirations for the book was I grew up in the late 80s, early 1990s, and so there was never a period in my life where I did not know about sex and AIDS. Ah. Like, I learned about the two of them simultaneously. It wasn't like I learned about one first and then the other. So for me, sex was always deadly. You know, intimacy could always be fatal.
0: I agree with you. Um, That's...
2: that's Gwen in and the music. I, That's in
0: yeah. Gwen and I grew up in the exact same time period yeah. as you did, and by the time we really understood what sex was, um, you had uh, Rock Hudson and mm-hmm. the and the you know um, the news stories and everything that came out of it. Acted
2: up, yeah. And, and Silence course, equals death.
0: We were in the Reagan administration yep. and the conservative movement you mm-hmm. know, took a hold of that, and you know abstinence and mm-hmm. it was it was a it was a crazy time to learn about sex yep. because you associated sex with fear.
2: Yeah, exactly, and death.
0: Yeah. And that's still probably true for me, you know, and for a lot of people. And you you can't unlearn that.
2: No, no, no. And that's why I was interested in how has that mindset permeated our understanding of intimacy? And so that was sort of one of the original questions behind the book, was to sort of look at depictions of intimacy in film and television during the 1990s to see, you know, where does AIDS show up, right? And you look at movies like Todd Haynes' Safe from 1995, which is not literally about AIDS, but it's clearly about AIDS because it's a a woman whose immune system cannot protect her from the world in which she lives.
0: The the fear of AIDS and the fear and and the mindset of the 1980s, they say, is one of the reasons— why uh, Hugh Hefner at the time actually got married in the in the mid 80s because basically there was no more crazy sex at the Playboy Mansion. All of that was shut down by the AIDS crisis. So he decided to get married again. And then you know that all all that ridiculousness came back full swing with the with the explosion of Viagra in the, in the 2000s. And so it's it's crazy how these cultural things that happen you know affect and. You know, we we just see how it kind of all plays out.
2: Oh, yeah. And so in the introduction to my book, which is probably a little bit longer than an introduction should be, is I chart out all these things that were happening in America historically, culturally, socially, and politically during the early 1990s -hmm. because outbreak didn't emerge in a vacuum, right? right? It wasn't like Wolfgang Peterson was like, oh, I got a great idea for a movie. Like, you can clearly chart out these things that were happening in America that then resulted in the release and success of outbreak.
0: thing that you charted out and with respect to the time period was in the late 1980s early 1990s the big 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 global boogeyman went away and that was the soviet union so what are we going to talk about on the nightly news? We got to, how are we going to scare the hell out of people? Hmm. And then you, then you pointed out how the virus stories um, and, you know, Ebola and everything started to come out during that time. Do you think that there was this vacuum that the the viral stories filled once the Soviet Union, kind because of, when the Soviet Union collapsed, the world was in this new place. Terrorism wasn't at our doorstep yet. You had, you had the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, but still, you know, most people kind of dismiss that but everybody remembers all these virus stories and all these virus movies did it fill that gap
2: i think in a in a certain way it did but i think there were other forces at play because one of the things that I find fascinating is that if you went to medical school in the 1960s and you wanted to study infectious diseases, they'd kind of pull you aside and be like, don't waste your time. Like, that would be as if you decided you wanted to learn how to, like, repair typewriters. They'd be like, Rudy, like, there are better things you should focus on. So in the 1960s, there was a real complacency around infectious diseases that we'd sort of taken care of them all and that now we only had to worry about diabetes and cancer and all that. And so when AIDS emerged seemingly out of nowhere and scientists and doctors couldn't figure out what it was I mean if you trace the early years of AIDS there's so much like mixed messaging I mean there was a period of time where there were articles that said if you were a woman you could not get it because that was just biologically as a woman You were prevented from having it and then of course the original acronym was GRID gay related immune deficiency or disorder so they thought it was just affecting gay people so if you were a hetero couple you're not gonna get aids right so there was so much misinformation and so much just kind of confusion and then the fact that they couldn't find a cure and we thought like you know Our medical establishment is top of the line. And then, like, we don't know what to do. So that's part of the trauma. Then you have, as you said, Reagan, who the administration just ignored it, that that there were many people who basically said, well, if it's just killing gay people, we don't care. So then you have this idea that, oh, our government isn't going to protect us. Right? That's another layer of trauma. So you have all these kind of different things that are happening. Plus, you have the baby boomers getting older. So there's more awareness of bodies and immune system and health and all that stuff. So I think there were kind of a lot of different forces at play.
0: So that's why we're all messed up right now, you, uh, us three in this room? Yes. Because we came up during that time. Yes. Would, yes. Would, you, would you agree,
1: Gwen? We're pretty messed up. You know what? I'm okay. <laughs> 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 I, I'm damaged. I'm, da- I'm just thinking about how much the research on AIDS or our understanding of AIDS, if it had not first been understood by somebody who contracted it who was gay, how much that would have changed the trajectory of things.
2: Well, also just the fact that scientists didn't study women because they right. they thought for a long time that, oh, women couldn't get AIDS. This wasn't an issue. Yeah. You know, and so it's like, yeah, imagine if from day one they had known it was a hetero, you know, that it, it affected heterosexual people. Like it didn't matter, you know, what your sexuality was, or your gender was. I mean, just, yeah, it's Im- impossible to imagine how different or like if Reagan had been like, this is a priority. I mean, it's <laughs> yeah. like, I mean, yeah, yeah, it's impossible to imagine. He
0: couldn't. He was battling those Soviets. He had, right. he had other things on his hands.
2: <laughs> right. If Brock Hudson would just go away, then everything would be okay. Well,
1: I think that's one of the things that you actually, that you bring up in your book that really made me, really made me think about this, this concept of otherness. Could you tell us what,
2: just for people listening, what does
1: otherness mean? What do you mean by otherness?
2: One of the things that I point out to my students and it relates to what we were actually talking about earlier with this idea where it's it's easier to kill someone if you see them as less than human right right and it's easier to lock someone up in a cage if you see them as less than human right Mm -hmm. I mean this is from time immemorial we look at you know in the early 20th century and it was like oh those immigrants they're bringing in disease right so it's like If you other someone, if you make them less than human, then it's easy to overlook them, it's easy to treat them differently. And so one of the kind of trajectories that I point out to my students is this idea of like, who is the other at that cultural moment? So for instance, when AIDS first started, it was was gay people. And so it was gay people who didn't matter. So if gay people died, who cares? Um, It was gay people who were spreading the disease. So it was like if you were if you were straight, you were fine. I could have sex with you. But if you were gay, oh, you were probably you probably had it.
1: It just fed into that moral narrative.
2: Exactly right. Because again, there's a deserving aspect to it. It just fed into that. Exactly. Exactly. And then because people were convinced that AIDS had come from Africa. So then there is this association of Africa with AIDS and oh, Africa is so primitive and it's so viral ridden. And so that's where it's coming from. Right. And then you have after 9-11, of course, it's all about the Muslims and the Middle East east and that's where the threat is and those are the dangerous people and one of the examples i talk about is in the Zack snyder remake of dawn of the dead which has nothing to do with the middle east in the opening credits very randomly you've got some scenes from the middle east and you have some middle eastern men praying and you have some shots of turkey and it's got nothing to do with the movie but Mm -hmm. the implication is oh that's where it originated even though that's not in the narrative at all. And then, of course, after avian flu, that's when, oh, Asian countries, that's where it's dangerous and deadly, right? So it's just interesting to kind of see who is the person who's seen as being dangerous. Right. You know, and we, I mean, we have it in present day, right? I mean, Trump said that all Haitians have AIDS. So again, it's all, it's, you can learn it's a lot. It's
0: because they're from a shithole country. Well, exa- you, pl- well, exa- you must complete the sentence.
1: right. <laughs> right you know you had pointed out in the book that parallel of him talking about an infestation mm-hmm. of immigrants and i i mean yeah that's that's really hard i did my master's thesis on the concept of violence and non-violence. So I did a, read a lot of, of Hannah Arendt stuff, I read a lot of Gandhi stuff, Martin Luther King, and I was really convinced by their arguments of the logic of non-violence and defining what that meant. Is it an absence of violence? What is it? But then I had to reconcile, but we are violent. So how is it possible if the norm is to not, to be human, to be is to be nonviolent that you reduce your status as a human being when you are violent. So how do you explain the violence if I'm agreeing with this? And I isolated the idea of language and that was causing the otherness so anytime we are using words to refer to another human being as something other than human that that is problematic that is what allows for this Mm -hmm. for this violence to occur yeah Mm -hmm. because you'll notice that that's why like racial slurs they're not it's not a little thing it's not just a word Mm -hmm. it is a way to not see another person as human and then that is what allows that's allows for behavior that's really uh, abhorrent. Okay, let's do the tropes. Okay, the tropes. <laughs> Going you know, back one, to that. One of them that I really liked that I thought, oh yeah, you said that um, there's some sort of a map that gives us projection yes. of where the virus is um, heading. Yes. That really stunned me because it's true.
2: So... One The the six key tropes, these are the thematic tropes. They're also the visual tropes, which is where Mm -hmm. you get into the maps and where you get into masks. Um, But the thematic tropes are, one, the idea of the necessary accident. Because if everything is perfect, there's never going to be an outbreak. So there's always going to be someone who slips out of quarantine or someone who tears a suit in the lab. There's always got to be something that that intensifies the drama.
0: The big oops.
2: The big oops, right. Uh, Because without that, then it would be a very, it would be a much more contained sort of situation. Okay. Then another trope is, as we've been talking about, the othering. So there's always got to be someone that you're afraid of. There's always got to be someone that's linked to the virus in some way, someone who's seen as less than human. And so depending on when the narrative came out, that might be Africans, it might be Middle Easterns, it might be Asians, but there's always going to be some group that infects the good white people. Then the third trope is the idea of establishing security where those others, right, those scary others, are posing a threat. So, do we quarantine them? Do we build a wall? Do we, you know, pass a Muslim I, I, ban? I,
0: I'm I'm much more uh, I'm focused on a on a new um, way of dealing with it called trenches. You just go ahead and blow up the <laughs> land, and we create an island of the United States. There's this book that I'm very fond of that that built trenches. It's called The Raffle, and They're they're like, this is stupid. Let's not build walls. Let's just build big holes. So that could be in the future.
2: Okay, okay. Maybe you should write Trump a letter. Yeah, (laughs) I might. I might send him him a
0: couple of some design plans. Yeah, it's a good idea. Yeah.
2: And then another trope that I talk about is, so on one hand, you have the othering, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, if, you, if you're told that, um, you know, oh, gay people are infectious, right, and you're going to avoid them, you're going to keep them at bay, whether it be with a wall or a trench or whatever. But then the other thing is that contagious diseases can bring you together. So, for instance, if while we are in here recording this podcast, there is an Ebola outbreak in downtown L.A., we're kind of going to be stuck together because we're going to be the only three people not impacted by the outbreak. Right, So you're going to have, there's going to be a kind of unity. And you see that in shows like The Walking Dead, where you have the makeshift family of the band of survivors who has to stick together because they're fighting the threat. So there is this kind of unity that comes in. Also, this emphasis on making the invisible visible. Because the scary thing about AIDS was you couldn't see what was going to kill you. So if there's a man on the street with a gun, you're like, oh, that's the threat. Right, But if I have a deadly virus, you can't see that virus, and I touch you, and that virus travels to your skin, and you still can't see it, right? That's terrifying. So to compensate, we have you'll see in all these movies there's always going to be like a very dramatic sequence where they're zooming in on the mic on the microscope and you're like oh that's the virus that's what it looks like and there were tons of magazine covers like time and newsweek where you'd have a close up of the virus and it was like you know this is the thing that's going to kill you so that shows up because we're again it's it's terrifying and you mentioned also in outbreak how it was really it made you uncomfortable to watch it and mm-hmm. i don't know if you remember that there's a scene in outbreak where they're in the movie theater
0: it's a, it's a fantastic scene <laughs>
2: Fantastic. And it's so disturbing if you think that mo- people at the time were watching Outbreak in the movie theater while on screen in the movie theater. There's this animated sequence where you can see the virus traveling in the air through the movie theater. I, I wore
0: a gas mask during yes. the film. I just showed up with it. That <laughs> mask right there on the front cover of your book, I wore that to watch Outbreak. But it was a good movie. It was fun to watch.
2: And then uh, I also talk about Fear of Progress, which is Interesting because you'd think that progress is going to be what would protect us from the viruses, but what ends up happening over and over again is that there's a link between globalization and increased vulnerability, or globalization and ease of transmission, right? So it's because we spend so much time flying from different countries, Mm -hmm. that viruses are really movable. It's because you know, Gwyneth Paltrow's character is globetrotting the world as this like, you know, corporate uh, entrepreneur or whatever and so she goes to Asia and she comes back and that's how she spreads the virus, right? So globalization is linked.
0: I'm going to tie everything together for for, for our listeners. I'm going to tie it here for Gwen. I'm thinking this, I don't know, I have no no idea why I've been blessed to be on this particular show with you because I'm, I'm fascinated by this subject but here's why I think I'm sitting here right now and it ties into that last trope and you brought this up in your book it's a, just a follow-on from your from what you're just saying about globalization how progress makes us sick globalization and the proliferation of roads, Mm -hmm. cities, and airports, which are infrastructure, infrastructure. (laughs) which is what I am, because I'm an infrastructure finance attorney, Mm -hmm. and I advocate for redoing infrastructure, expanding infrastructure. So in a way, if you're looking at the six tropes, I'm advocating for the spreading of diseases. Yeah.
2: No, I mean, there's a reason why survivalists want to build a bunker and hide out you know, six feet underground or whatever, because it is all that infrastructure that's allowing these viruses to spread. It's the fact that we're tearing down forests and releasing animals into habitats where they don't belong that then is causing some kind of weird hybrid. And that's what's, you know, because if you look at a lot of these outbreak narratives, the virus frequently travels by plane. So I think Ru- that's your new Twitter bio by the way. It, it is. It, Rudy
0: Sallow, municipal bond attorney, writer, uh sometimes actor and virus spreader. That's that's basically <laughs> what it's going to come out. Virus spreader. Oh virus spreader. Yeah, well, that's what we're talking about here. I oh mean, infrastructure That somehow
1: sounds worse. Doesn't
0: it? it? It really it really really does. Yeah, no. I th- I mean that, that 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 hit me. I was like, "Oh, that's so cool." Like I'm causing viruses to be spread because I am advocating for expansion of infrastructure to be built.
2: I'm gonna go right home to my bunker after this. You should.
0: <laughs> you you absolutely should. There was something that I, that is uh, two things that were pervasive throughout your book. And by the way, if you haven't figured it out yet, I, I love it Thank in you. a lot of ways. Thank you. Fear sells and brings grant money. Mm-hmm. Like, would you say that's one of the themes of the book, or that yes. just okay? Yes. Um, can you expand upon that a little yes.
2: bit? Yes. So fear sells. Period. Full stop. So fear becomes very lucrative, right, because people are going to buy stuff if they're afraid. People are going to be more pliable if they're afraid. So for instance, we were talking about the earthquakes just recently happened. I don't have any statistics, but I would bet money that the sales of earthquake kits went through the roof. Uh,
0: Let me, I got. About six fire my my wife six fire extinguishers. We just got the house checked for um you know the foundation and stuff. The the amount of money <laughs> that we're gonna we're supposed to spend now because of these earthquakes is makes me want to get a virus. Mm-hmm. I mean seriously. No, and
2: the earthquake survival kits you've got to like update it every year. I mean it's it's an investment, we, right? We have
0: 20 things of peanut butter in my house right yeah. now. I'm not kidding. I mean it's it's absolutely incredible.
2: No, I have bottles of water stashed and like Well, now I know closet. where to go in an emergency. Oh yeah, <laughs> no, no, yeah. You, but,
0: except you know, I, I don't know if there's going to be any infrastructure that's going to get mean, you all the way from Pasadena to Manhattan Beach.
1: If you get almond butter, then I'll be there without an emergency. Oh, perfect. That's,
0: <laughs> I, we have, we've got tons of almond butter. Yeah. No, no, you're right. But uh, uh, fear definitely sells. I love the, and, and brings grant money. Yes. One of the things that, that you mentioned in the introduction and perhaps this was in the 1970s and this had to do with the oh god it, maybe it wasn't the swine flu or Gerald Ford and how the CDC the CDC uh, they they made this like they they went overboard with some uh, one of the um, one, one of the one army person died and Gerald Ford told everybody to get vaccinated against some oh, kind of flu oh that was an extreme
2: reaction yeah yeah
0: and the in, in your book you pointed out well yeah the CDC really advocated for this because then their budget got tripled or quadrupled yes. right yes. after that
2: And this is some of the stuff that I outlined in the introduction that set the stage for outbreak because there was a reason why Americans were so primed to be terrified of Ebola in 1995. Let me emphasize, there has been one death on American soil of Ebola. Like if you're going to, If you're gonna be freaking out about stuff that might kill you, like you should be more concerned about diabetes or falling in your bathtub. But instead there's this like sensationalized fear about Ebola because we've been programmed that it's this horrific thing and that we're all at risk. And so if you look at what was going on in the early 1990s, you'll see that a lot of people in the sort of medical science community we're speaking in this very hyperbolic language about how, you know, one out of every three people are gonna die as a result of HIV. All we need is one little mutation. And it's like, okay, calm down. That's like that's not really a thing. And I think another important distinction that's really overlooked is that a disease can either be very fatal or very contagious. It cannot be both. Because if it's very fatal, it's gonna kill you before you've spread it. Ah. And if it's very contagious, The reason it's contagious is because you're still alive to spread it. So this idea that there's gonna be this like massive virus that's very contagious and very fatal, like it, it logically doesn't make sense. But one of my favorite anecdotes that I talk about in the book is the concept of disease surveillance. And this was during the Korean War when budgets were being slashed for basically everything but the defense department and alexander Langmuir at the cdc had this incredibly clever idea where he was like i'm going to call this practice disease surveillance what's disease surveillance disease surveillance is basically just kind of keeping up with hospital records so that if there's a weird case of the flu in Boston and there's a weird case of the flu in Northampton and there's a weird case of the flu in Vermont, you're like, hmm, I'm gonna track those. They might be related. That's disease surveillance. Just It's looking to kind of see for patterns. But he called it disease surveillance because that sounds really sexy and you know defense related. And so he got funding from the Defense Department for mm-hmm. disease surveillance for the CDC even though it's not really a military thing. So there are lots of little... I mean, the the, the fear over weapons of mass destruction was much deserved, but it wasn't the first time that that kind of thing had happened.
0: I get it. You, sometimes you have to change the branding of what you're doing in order to get those marketing dollars. I mean, it's, exactly. it's, it's capitalism at the end of the day. I mean, that's just kind of how it works. I mean, I understand, especially in a time of slashing budgets uh, in, in the 1950s.
1: One of the results of the fear... That you write about is that one of the consequences, I actually wrote four consequences, immunological, did I pronounce that correctly? Sure. Okay, there we go. Political, social, and ideological. Okay. What are some examples of the political and social consequences of this idea of a deadly disease or deadly carriers that you've noticed in these films?
2: Well, One of the things that I talk about in my classes is this idea that in ancient times, rulers would supposedly, I mean, it's probably hyperbolic, but they would dream of an outbreak because when there's an outbreak... People will do whatever you tell them to do. And so I think an excellent example of that is if you look at what happened after 9-11 when people were like, oh, yeah, let's give Bush all the authorization because this is a really scary time. And if he wants to declare war, like, that's okay. So that's a very classic example of a political change that is coming out of this place of fear that would not okay that would not normally make any sense okay all right right like if we hadn't had 9-11 they wouldn't have authorized the military force because we have a protocol in place things are supposed to go xyz and so this idea of like oh we got to short circuit it that came only about because of fear
0: yeah and they're and you said this very well in your in the book. 9/11 temporarily united us, mm-hmm. and we put aside our distrust of the government very mm-hmm. very briefly. But all those fears of the government itself came back, you know, with a strong vengeance, yes. and it probably came back quicker than normal because we live in the internet age, because we have more access to information, and and the conspiracy theorists have kind of a built-in easy way to to build out conspiracy theorists, and and I do feel like they the conspiracy theorists chipped away a bit at at the unification of the United States after 9-11. Because we know, you know, we know it was terrorists that brought down the buildings. I mean, that happened. But, you know, the invasion of Iraq was completely based upon fear and lies. It was all lies. But I
2: think part of the problem with 9-11 and part of the problem that, that D.C. had was we didn't have an easy-to-follow narrative. So with World War II, it was really easy to be like, oh, Nazis are the bad guys, period, full stop. Yeah. But who's Al-Qaeda? Is Al-Qaeda Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, Saudi Arabia? It's the problem
0: with the stateless actor. Whenever whenever you have something that's stateless in a way and you have a multi-country... Uh, components to the organization that was Al Qaeda and probably still is Al Qaeda in whatever form that it's in now, it's it's one of the problems. Is because you can't just easily point your I finger know. at one particular pace. You have to point all ten of your fingers at all. Well, are they really involved? And you know Saddam Hussein's problem, right? And when you're dealing when you're looking at the Iraq War of two thousand and three is. His silence as to whether or not there there were some silence because he feared Iran and he feared the other countries that are around him he probably should have been been a lot more vocal about no we don't have weapons of mass destruction no we don't have these things but he had his own fears to deal with
2: and I don't know if it would have made a huge difference and
0: it probably wouldn't have no I I we were going after him yeah. I mean it was it was it was written in 1991 that this was going to happen I right. mean I couldn't agree more with you but it's uh, so I think
2: part of the problem was that. That Bush couldn't get bin Laden. And Absolutely. Every, I mean it,
0: so who could he easily get?
2: Forgive me for this <laughs> tangent, but it's a little bit like what went wrong with Twin Peaks, where David Lynch put all his eggs in the who killed Laura Palmer basket. And then it was kind of like, once you got Laura Palmer, how do you sustain the TV show? Whereas with 9-11, it was like look, we were putting all our eggs in the basket of Osama bin Laden, but then we couldn't find him. So how are you supposed to sustain any kind of momentum? Because there's, and you know, Carl Rove went to Hollywood, right? Yeah. He spoke with producers. They were trying to figure out how do we simplify this into a binary narrative where the Americans are the good guys, the Middle Easterners are the bad guys, but you can only sustain that kind of fiction for so long, and I think that's really why it collapsed.
0: You you can sustain it for, for so long. Dare I say it's still somewhat sustained in a certain segment of our population. Oh, yeah. I mean, I do think that... A good majority of our population still believes that America's threats come from the Middle East. Of course right, i have
2: that playing out all every day, basically. I've, in rhetoric,
0: I've had that play out my entire life. Mm-hmm. Like my parents are from Jordan, and I've been here, and I grew up here, and I and I learned a lot about the Middle East by watching the the Civil War in Lebanon, and then the hijackings, and and that's that's where a part of my identity came from part of my identity came from this fear and so i've always felt alienated in a way and you know that has definitely affected a lot of my writings and a lot of things that i've done I believe it. and i understand it i mean i i get it and, and then lo and behold 9-11 actually happens mm-hmm. it happened and it's like well damn some really bad things did occur. Of course you have to peel away a lot of the pieces of yeah. the onion to learn, okay, well, how did this happen? Why did this happen? Exactly. What was our role yes. in allowing this to happen when you go and you look at the Afghan battle against the the, the Soviet Union in the nineteen eighties and how we abandoned that country, et cetera, et, mm-hmm. et cetera, and all other US historical things that have gone wrong. I mean, no country's perfect. OK, we, we can agree that no country is perfect, including our very, very own. And yeah, I just I do think that we are going to always fear the Middle East because mm-hmm. it's, the problems there are never going to get solved. It's just not going to happen. I, I don't care who, what, what you think or what Kool-Aid you're drinking. It's too easy to point the finger at.
2: Oh, of course. But that's what's so yeah. crazy is you're if you're talking about some kind of a terrorist attack, you're more likely to be attacked by a white nationalist. I well, want to bring I want to something that's up. That's what I was thinking of because there's a point that you don't have to be
1: reflective, right? You don't have to be afraid of things that could actually be an injury like creepy white people with all of their stockpiles of guns who are these nationalists and they are a real threat
0: prior to 911 the big terrorist strike in the united states oklahoma city bombing yeah. which was white supremacists yep. okay and there are a lot of domestic organizations here in the united states and particularly they feel very very strong these days with our current administration yep. that are a lo- you're a lot more prone to getting Either attacked or, or or killed by them, but they're not the other. Mm-hmm. Right, their skin is white. Mm-hmm. Let's just be honest. You yeah. know, yeah. at the end of the day, they're just good old Christians.
1: Yeah, right.
2: No, no, absolutely, one hundred percent.
1: There's another quote in here that I'm interested in. Want to know if you could expand on it? You say the desire to see what would happen after the end of civilization is not merely about a desire to return to the Wild West or to celebrate white male patriarchy. It is about a desire to feel alive, to be reborn. Mm-hmm. So a couple of things, a desire to celebrate white male patriarchy, what do you mean by that? And then also this desire to feel alive or to be reborn. I think that's so interesting, after the end of a civilization.
2: Yeah. Well, I think, so the, the white male patriarchy, and that's where you look at the sort of standard, default zombie narrative, which okay. tends to be very white male driven. and. Yes, The Walking Dead evolved over time, but if you look at early seasons of The Walking Dead, that's a classic example. One of the reasons why I love the TV show I Zombie so much is because not only do you have a zombie protagonist, that's weird, but you have a female zombie protagonist, which is so refreshing. But most of the time, zombie narratives really are this kind of return to traditional American values, right? Where the women stay home and take care of the kids and the men run around and hunt zombies. So that's part of that
0: one of the very first um, films that got me interested in the end of the world and there were a lot of them but it was the original Night of the Living Dead the one that George Romero of uh, which at um, spoiler alert uh, at, the, at, <laughs> at, at, the, at the very end of the film if you
2: haven't seen that movie yet then I'm sorry it,
0: actually if you haven't seen that movie yet stop listening to this podcast go <laughs> onto YouTube because it's in the public domain yeah. you can download it and watch it for free because somebody screwed up and didn't renew the, the copyright on it at the very end
1: and then come back and listen to the podcast. <laughs> yeah,
0: and then listen to it again. And then at the very end, yep. the the black protagonist mm-hmm. is killed by a white man mm-hmm. at the very very end of that movie. I mean, it just ties Even, it together. I
2: know. And what's fascinating about Night of the Living Dead is so when George Romero was a, was originally working on that screenplay, there was no racial subtext. He didn't know that this this main character was going to be an African Yeah,
0: Dwayne I think it's Dwayne, Dwayne Jones, yeah. Yeah.
2: So It originally was going to be, you know, usual zombie movie, lots of white people. And then a couple things happened. One is, of course, that Dwayne Jones ended up being the best actor for the role. But then it was sort of like once he was there, all these other elements sort of took on this kind of additional gravitas. And okay, so Martin Luther King was killed or assassinated after the film had finished shooting. But... It was in such close proximity that people watching that movie couldn't not think about Martin Luther King's assassination. So it was sort of like it was in the zeitgeist, even though, yeah, George Romero wasn't psychic. He didn't know it was going to happen. But it was the height of civil rights conflict.
0: I'm going to put Gwen on the hot seat because I always do that with one question. Gwen, hmm. have you seen the original Night of the Living Dead?
1: No, only parts <gasps> of it. Stop, stop talking. Dead.
0: Go watch. I want you to go to my office right now, of and I dead want does you to go. Count? It does no. not count. It's a great film, though. *Shauna Den is a great film, but the original *Night yeah. of the Living Dead*. The reason why I write today, the reason why I write my dystopian science fiction stories, is because I watched that movie, and you know what I came up with? I came up with well, what was going on in the in the world outside of *Night of the Living Dead*, which is. As you know, like what Walking Dead is kind of based upon now, and had I stuck with it, I could have been a war, war, because I was. This was like in the third grade. I could have been a very well known zombie writer, yeah. and I didn't stick with it. Instead, I became in this this the third grade once once again. That's when I decided to become a lawyer, and so my whole life changed in the third grade, Gwen. That's what mm-hmm. this all comes down to. I, I should I should have stuck with zombie writing.
2: But yeah, no, no. I talk at length about Night of the Living Dead because it's it's not only is it kind of so the zombie narratives really sort of have like three waves, right? So the first wave is the one that came out of Haiti and a fascination with voodoo culture. White
0: zombie yes. with, uh, what's his name? Uh, B- Bela Lugosi. Bela Lugosi. Yeah. yes. So
2: this idea of, you know, you have the, the, the it's basically all about indentured servitude yep. that continues after death, and you have, you know, the, the zombie slaves and all that. So that's sort of like the first wave. But then the second wave is the one that George Romero launched with Nine of the Living Dead, and that's when you start to have zombies eating human flesh and not having any kind of agency or control and just kind of wandering around and so it really changed how people understood zombies and that would sort of directly lead to the third wave which is what we have today where everything is sort of sped up and you become a zombie much faster zombies move much faster Um, but the zombies that we have now we wouldn't have if it hadn't been for george romero i'm
0: going to ask you to play psychologist for a second. Why is it my favorite genre to write is dystopian? Is it because I want to play out the the what-ifs in my brain? Or what is it about it? I love to write dystopian. I like to kind of read it a little bit. I like to watch movies. But why would somebody like me prefer to write in that genre? Would you think?
2: This is one of the questions that I unpack in the book is – because, I mean, why are we so fascinated with all these dystopian narratives? It's not You're not alone, right? I mean, lots of people are fascinated with what will the end of the world look like. And I think one is, as you said, it's it's the playing out of the what if, right? I mean, if you open up the newspaper, you'll find an article that says the world is going to end in 20 years because of climate change. I mean, it's like impossible to turn that off. So it's sort of like, OK, well, what is the world going to look like when X, Y, Z happens. But then you have the converse, which is that kind of romanticizing of that notion, which is wouldn't it be kind of awesome if I didn't have to worry about student loans and Twitter and my credit card bill and my mortgage and picking up the soy milk at Trader Joe's and just all this garbage that fills our sort of day to day life and literally all you had to worry about was surviving and protecting your family.
0: Yes, I, I I do agree, although I, I do feel there's a romanticization of the simplification of that survival. Oh,
2: oh no, of course, of course, but yeah. I'm saying that's part of the appeal. 100% is it's like oh, but that's when men can be men again.
0: That's not the reason why I'm in. No, do, no, no, do not put I me think, on the hot seat here. That is not why I write I, dystopian. That's I don't, not no, why I, don't
2: I, know I do you it. Well enough. I'm, i, I <laughs> hypothetically. That's one of the. I like reasons
1: it, but, but it
0: nope. That's not does. me. That's I, not the reason why.
1: I think. Well, this is my my moral theory coming in, but I think dystopians what they force us to do is they dystopians generally radicalize a concept of wrong that's counterintuitive that we might take for granted, and it isn't until we're thrown into that dystopian world that we recognize some values. A lot of them have to do with t- taking away of freedoms mm-hmm. and individuality so many dystopians have to do with taking away of choice yes that when it's you're thrown into a dystopia and then you see that it, it makes you reassess the value of that choice of that individuality I think we have that from the raffle to you have that from divergent this mm-hmm. idea that yep. a young girl is not able to be more than one thing that fits into society Handmaid's Tale 1984 which is mm-hmm. just so haunting that's what I think as well, to the kind of an existential point that you made, something else I work on is death contemplation, which is just goes over so well at parties. Uh, yeah, I, I'm gonna <laughs> get, I'm gonna no get no, me some whiskey. This is why no one invites philosophers out. Yeah, don't, um, don't invite us to party. <laughs> I won't. Thank you for the warning. I, I really appreciate it. You describe this as a life where every day could be your last. Yeah. That's a really interesting thing because it almost makes every other value superfluous at that point. Mm -hmm. And this is the survival. Is there something kind of, uh, maybe that's another reason why we're drawn to it is that at that point, it doesn't matter what your degree is. It doesn't matter your wealth. Everybody is in the same boat as A human.
2: No, that's what I was saying to Rudy, that it's about getting rid of the white noise that is so damn annoying, and literally you're focusing on your survival.
1: Okay. Because,
2: yes, everything else is superfluous.
1: So you gave a talk, what was it, about a week ago about this book? I'm wondering, what is the feedback from your work? What are people speaking up about, or what are they thinking? Or from your students, what does an 18-year-old think about a movie from, you know, the 90s, or... I think that Night of the Living Dead is nineteen sixty
0: six, six sixty eight. Yeah, which um, you you have. I've got a laundry list of things you know, for you that, to also, do.
1: I also need to learn how to use public, transportation. public
0: There's transportation. There's a whole. Th- I've got this list. It's it's just we'll growing. Masterclass. It's crazy. I feel like
1: yeah. you know, what, I'm I'm being given homework. I, no, yeah, you're, that's what that's
0: what it's like, Professor. You're going to get your own homework from me.
2: Okay. I think for my students, um, the things that. I mean, and ideally we would ask them, but I think what resonates to them, first of all, is they tend to think of Hollywood and entertainment as happening in a vacuum. So it's like, oh, it's just this thing that shows up on the TV when I turn the TV on, right? Or I go to the movie theater and there's this movie because someone in Hollywood wanted to make it. And so... When you point out to them, this TV show is a direct response to, you know, Betty Friedan and the Feminine Mystique and suppression of women and gender roles and blah, blah, blah. And they're kind of like, oh... Because they like for them, it was like this is real life, and then that's the sort of entertainment, and they don't realize that the two influence each other. So, that right. I think always kind of blows it's in their a mind. context, yeah, that, that real life influenced entertainment, and influ- entertainment influences real life. I right. mean, it's they're constantly intertwined. And then, I think the other thing that that uh, I think surprises them is they tend to think of like, you know, oh, history that's something that happened, you know, back then, and so. I constantly point out how these things are being repeated. And just because something happened in 1995 doesn't mean it's not happening in 2019. Mm -hmm. You know, and so I'm constantly drawing references to things that are happening in present day. And I'm saying, I mean, this, you know, those who do not understand the past are condemned to repeat it. But I think a lot of students think like, oh, history, it's this thing that I study, you know, between 10 and 11 a.m. in the morning, and then I close the book, and then it's gone. And it's like, no, 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 no. Like this... By studying these movies, for instance, you are going to better understand what's happening in Washington right now.
1: Right, I think that's one of the reasons why I enjoy pop culture. Yes, is because I'm interested. Not that I like everything in pop culture, but anything that turns into a phenomenon, I want to know about it Same. because I think that it reflects what we're what we're thinking.
2: Yes.
0: Yeah. The only thing I would um, push back on that is um, I do not want game of thrones to be a part of our pop culture but that's there's but not it a sh- it's not a part there's not a sh- uh, show on game of thrones but that's what there are some things in pop culture that I, i'm just trying to figure out why it's happening and i can't figure it out well, it's driving well, me crazy going to your point of trying to figure it out
2: you do know exactly why game I, of thrones is successful I,
0: I i do i do it's just it's it's it like just bang, it's just banging my head up against the wall I know. is what it is
1: you know, I want um, good reviews for this podcast, and I don't know if this I know,
0: is I know. I know this is really. I know it's my fault. She can edit. She can edit that part out. She can edit out anything stupid <laughs> that I say, which is which is fine. I just I felt like I had to bring that forward. I had to bring it all together.
1: Well, hey, look, I read all of the Fifty Shades of Grey bullshit. Oh God, and so did I. I had to. I didn't because I didn't. You know what? Yeah, and and it shows. But I had to, not because it was like, okay, this is a lovely piece of literature or I was enjoying it. It's, it's very, very bad. It's very, it's terrible writing. There is actually good erotic fiction out there that to me it was shocking that that, yes. what was it about that? But I had to know about it because it's not because I think this is a great work of literature, but I need to know what, why are we gravitating to I'm it? I'm the same way. Yeah, that's why I think pop culture is so is so important. I really like um I'm I'm interested in the portrayal of women mm-hmm. particularly I think that something like with Twilight Bella's character really bothered me mm-hmm. that she was just not very bright and the vampire couldn't read her thoughts and I'm like because I don't think she has any <laughs> I think that's what's going on and then some people would say but this is a romance that's the way that she's supposed to be so no. you can look at other pop culture like Divergent, Hunger Games, mm-hmm. Hermione and Harry Potter mm-hmm. that these young women were all terribly bright and courageous and exhibited all of these virtues of the intellect, and they—that is what made them so great. So this notion that women have to be kind of vacuous in order for a romance to work—it's just terrible. But it's important to me that I see that that's what people are gravitating to, Mm -hmm. because I need to know: okay, what ideas are we holding on to? Mm -hmm. Um, And then other things like with the Hunger Games—I was just fascinated that Katniss. Nobody ever made a comment. She's just a girl. It was just accepted Mm -hmm. that she was going to win the Hunger Games, that she was the strongest one. That was fascinating to Mm me. Yeah. So sometimes with the pop culture, it can reflect, you know, I think where we're going. And then other stuff like with Bella, it's like, geez, this is where this is appealing to a segment of the population, which I think is problematic and showing where we're going.
2: No, I think it becomes a really excellent kind of concentrated way to understand what's happening off screen.
1: Yeah, that's great. Okay. I think we covered it. Zombies, outbreaks.
0: Twilight. Virus spreading. <laughs> infrastructure. Infrastructure. Virus I brought infrastructure so, in that this. That just sounds so violent, I know. It's Rudy. very, it is very you it on your, it is, it's, it's violent. I
1: mean, it could be. Next time you're
0: chicken. at the airport, you think the word virus spreading. That's, that's basically <laughs> oh what the book God. says.
2: There's probably a sign that says, you know, if you've had these symptoms or you've, re- <laughs> you've recently been to these countries, there blah, is blah, a, blah. There
0: is a sign inside of the airports. That's what I'm yeah. That's no, what I'm that's, saying. that's exactly right. Like you
2: don't even have to, like it. It's going to find you.
0: It's going to remind you. No, I, yeah, I mean, I, you're right. It, it, it's time to end. I, I have to go um, end this, and I have to go issue some more bonds to spread some more viruses. Uh, Gwen, <laughs> That's I'm lovely. sorry. Yeah, That's I just lovely. wanted to put that thought out there for you and your listeners. Okay.
1: Dahlia, how can people get in touch with you?
2: They can find me on my website. Mm-hmm. This is Dahlia.com. And I also have a Facebook page, which is Facebook.com slash WhoisDahlia. Okay. Those are probably the two easiest.
0: And, and Gwen, as a, as a favor, do you do you put links into show notes or anything at the end of shows? Have you done that yet?
1: I I will. No, I haven't done that yet.
0: Oh, you should. I would. Okay. I mean, that, that's a that's a good one to put Absolutely. on there. And then you could also put you could also put the raffle twenty twenty seven on onto the website. Since sure. we've been talking about that book, today.
1: we will do that. If you have any questions about this episode, you can tweet me at g or at in the details pod.
0: And for any reason anybody wants to tweet me and learn about uh, municipal bonds and their their impact in the world and dystopian fiction, I'm at Sallow Rudy. That's me. That's at Sallow Rudy on Twitter.
2: And I'm at Dahlia Destiny on Twitter, but I keep forgetting to check it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, awesome. Thank you so much for this. This is great. Of course. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.